Good morning. I think this is the best part of the sermon, me being able to take off a mask. <laughs> Praise God for that one this morning. So this morning we're going to pick up where Pastor Stephen left off last week. So if you want, you can turn ahead to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. While I figure out my iPad here, here we go. So, you ever hear things like, you can do it, shoot for the stars, don't sell yourself short, don't settle for less, don't let anyone or anything hold you back, nothing is impossible for you, you have the power within, all things are possible, hey, you can all do all... You can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. Now, I realize I've just taken that one completely out of context. Pastor's about to run out yelling, heretic, heretic. But the truth of the matter is people will often throw that same verse in with other things like dream big. You know what I'm trying to do this morning as we open up this message is I'm trying to just remind us of the mantras of those who often live in discontent. They're, they're these powerfully magic phrases that those feeling discontentment in their lives will often repeat in, the, in their moments of mindfulness Believing that if they believe these things, if they repeat these things, if they say these things over and over, somehow it will change their life in order that they might begin walking in happiness and contentment. Discontentment. You know, it can be good at times. Discontentment over our sin, or maybe discontentment over the layer of dust that is formed on our Bible, that's, that's a good form of discontentment. But the kind of discontentment in this world that leads to those mantras is one of the world's biggest ploys. It's really one of Satan's most effective weapons. Advertisers use discontentment to get us to go out and buy the latest and greatest, the thing that we must have. Discontentment is used to call forth the covetousness that lies within our hearts. Politicians, they use discontentment to pull us into the ballot box so that we might vote for their regime. Misplacing where our trust ought to be for the future, moving it from God to man. Gyms and fitness gurus, especially after COVID, they're using discontentment to get us to sign up to gym memberships and to buy their videos and their books as our hearts begin to display the vanity that dwells within. 
Facebook and Instagram posts are really good at breeding discontentment as they reveal the envy that is lying within our hearts as we look at these posts of other people and say they're getting to do all these good things while I'm stuck at home. Megachurches often take advantage of discontentment. Now, I have to put a disclaimer here. Not all megachurches, but some take advantage of this discontentment as they seek to save the saved. Those who are not content in their small church where only biblical preaching, the worship in song and prayerful outreach is being done. Instead, a small group centered around uh, cosplay, scuba diving, and video games. Hey, I'm preaching to myself every bit as much as I'm preaching to anybody else that's listening this morning. You know why? Because in my life, time and time again, there have been many times um, where discontentment has kind of led me to say and do pretty foolish things. Now, before I continue, I need to confess, confess something. It's a disclaimer of sorts. The passage that Pastor Stephen assigned for me to preach today, I can't tell you how personal this passage is to me. It is one of the most personal passages I think I have in all of Scripture over the, at least the last 10, 15, 20 years. It's far more personal than our pastor would know unless he is a mind reader. So I'm wondering if he knew how personal it was for me. At times I think he is a mind reader. But all that being said, if you would like me to recuse myself this morning because it is so personal to me and sit down, I'd be more than happy to do that. Okay? All right. That being said, let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We will begin with verse 17 this morning. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. I'm just going to start with that. You know, last Sunday, when Pastor Stephen so faithfully preached some difficult portions of Scripture, Last Sunday, Paul ended telling Christians that whenever it is possible that they stay married to unsaved spouses, knowing, I mean, knowing that for a Christian to be unequally yoked in marriage to a non-believer, that that can make the marriage very painful at times for the Christian when maybe they feel like they're all alone, or maybe they feel like they're misunderstood at times, knowing that, Paul still tells those Christians, you know what, if your unsaved spouse will have it, you just stay put, and you just be the best representative of Christ in that relationship that you can be, and let's just hope that God then will save that unsaved spouse. So it is after that kind of a dialogue at the end of what Pastor Stephen preached last week that we now pick up this verse where Paul continues in verse 17. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. 
This is my rule in all of the churches. In verse 17, I see two inescapable truths. Inescapable truth number one, God is sovereign over us. He's assigned to you and to me this life that we are living. Now, when I looked at the word assign a bit more deeply, I learned that it carries with it the thought that God has strategically placed each of us where he wants us to be, and he's distributed to each of us a piece of the work that he wants accomplished on earth. He's made an assignment. We're being told Jesus has divided up his eternal plan into believer-sized pieces for each of us to accomplish by the power and the help of the Holy Spirit. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. Some of you are thinking, pastor, preacher, hey, guy up at the pulpit, slow down. Ain't you ever heard of free will? Why are you telling me God is sovereign over me, that he somehow assigned me something? Free will. So you chose your conception. Beautiful. You chose the year and the place of your birth. You chose your parents. You chose if your parents were, you know, dirt poor or filthy rich. You chose your teachers. Hey, and you chose that moment when that Bible-thumping Christian walked up to you on the street and put a track in your face with the gospel? You chose that? You chose each and every circumstance of your life? Well, I stand corrected. You have free will. But now for the rest of us in the room, I see two inescapable truths in verse 17. The first inescapable truth, again, being God is sovereign over creation, and as such, he's created and placed each of us right where he wants us. And inescapable truth number two, out of the depths of his great love, for our good and the good of others, and for the honor and the glory of his eternal name, God called us to himself and he has given us a piece of his eternal plan to be a part of, to accomplish according to his power and his will. One of my favorite verses in all of Scripture is Philippians 2.13. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God leaves nothing to chance. I mean, we can find a lot of peace in that truth. We can be content in that truth, that God leaves nothing to chance. Now, Corinth was a wealthy city. And you know, Pastor Stephen has been saying that because they're strategically placed on this trade route. I remember back in 2010 when Marilyn and I went to Corinth, one of the things that surprised me about cities like Corinth and Ephesus and some of those that we visited was the, the size of them. I mean, how big is Corinth, do you think? Do you think it's the size of Nashua? Do you think it maybe is the size of Merrimack? 
I mean, Corinth at one time, at this time when Paul's writing, has somewhere around maybe a half a million residents in the city. It spread out really large. It blew me away. And we're standing there, and we're hearing from our tour guide the same thing that Pastor Stephen's been saying, that this city is just strategically put, so it's very wealthy. So Corinth is a, a church that is more wealthy than other churches. And in addition to that, later on in 1 Corinthians, as we go through the letter, we'll find that this church apparently has another trait, and that is that a lot of these gifts of the Holy Spirit that are uncommon are kind of commonly coming about here. So based upon their wealth and their gifting, uh, Corinth, the church in Corinth, kind of sees themselves as special at times. So Paul slaps that down really quickly at the end of verse 17. Oh, by the way, this is my rule in all the churches. In other words, please don't consider yourself special. Because I say these things to all the churches, to every believer I meet. Now, when I first began attending Nashua Baptist uh, a year and a half ago, maybe, I don't know when it was, right there sat a jigsaw puzzle. And you know what I remember about that jigsaw puzzle? That thing sat there until every last piece of the puzzle was put into place. And then it came down. It was finished. And as I grew up as a child, you know, my dad loved doing jigsaw puzzles. Now, they're a bit challenging for me being colorblind. All right. Now, if I had a jigsaw puzzle, it was all white pieces or black pieces. Man, I'm in. But I remember my dad doing jigsaw puzzles. And there were two things that I learned from this. One is the corner piece really matters to get everything lined up right, you know, it's kind of like Christ, the cornerstone of the church. Got to have that one piece perfectly in place to get everything lined up. But the other thing I remember, and I remember one puzzle at one point. It was like a 5,000-piece puzzle. And that thing sat unfinished because I think the dog ate one of the pieces. And there's like 5,000 pieces minus one. And it's just sitting there. And I remember that thing sitting there, and it just stayed unfinished, incomplete, because the last piece of the puzzle had not been put into place. Now, it may sound trite to some, but there is a lot of contentment found in our being the puzzle piece that God has assigned and called us to be. Verse 18. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. Verse 19. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. That just kind of made me feel a bit uncomfortable. And maybe not for the reason you might think. So to understand this passage, to understand what Paul is talking about, about staying circumcised or trying to uncircumcise, I had to go to my bookshelf. And on my bookshelf, back from 1980, I have a Roman Catholic Bible. 
So I pulled that Bible off the shelf, and I went to a book called First Maccabees. Now, First Maccabees, in case you're looking for it in your current Bible, unless you have a, um, a King James that's maybe 100 years old or something, uh, you won't find it in there. And First Maccabees is one of 14 books of the Apocrypha, There are 14 books that were written between the Old and the New Testaments that are not, and I'll say it very clearly, that are not divinely inspired, so they're not part of our current canon, but they are considered to have some level of historic significance. So 1 Maccabees tells us that as Greek culture was spreading through the world, some Jews were laying aside their Jewish culture in order to adopt Greek culture, even to the point that they were kind of reversing their circumcision, that mark that they were a Jew. And that sounds painful. But what sounds more painful to me is the willingness of these Jews to exchange their identity with God and with Scripture for a secular culture and identity, just so that they would better fit into society and not stand out. I find that thought painful because it is my understanding that the church ought to influence society, not the other way around. When the church influences society, that's really good. But when the church adopts the culture of society so that she can better fit into this world so she does not stand out, I think that's a really bad thing. Because there are a lot of people that they get to this point that they say, I want to escape this world. And if the church looks like the world, then where shall they go? We're peculiar people for a reason. Let's not look like the world. Now, Paul is saying, if you were Jewish and you came to faith in Christ as a Jew then allow your circumcision to bring glory to God. Let it be a testimony that Jesus saves Jews. And if you're not circumcised and you came to the faith of God saved you as a secular Greek, then let your uncircumcision give glory to God as well. Let it be a testimony that God does not only save the Jew, but he saves also the Greek, the Gentile, the non-Jew. Okay, so if you've been saved since you were about this tall, right? And I'm not talking with the platform there, so about this tall. If you were saved since you were about that tall, and you have not gotten into any trouble, and you don't have this tense, this testimony of salvation that makes people cringe, then give glory to God that he saves and he protects some from a very young age. And if you are like the thief on the cross, a hellraiser since birth, and somehow God graciously pours out his forgiveness upon you and saves you when you're not looking, well, then give glory to God. That not only does he save those young 
He also saves those who are older, who are wretches like me. Circumcision, Paul is saying, is nothing. It's a work of the human hands. Circumcision, the work of our hands, cannot rescue any of us from the wrath of God against sin. Paul's saying it's nothing. It counts for nothing. For we are saved by grace through faith, and that faith is not of ourselves. It is a gift of God. Not as a result of any work that we have done, so none of us can boast. Paul's saying circumcision doesn't matter. What matters is God has saved you by his grace and his mercy. All that matters, Paul writes here, at the end of verse 19, is keeping the commands of God. So once God has assigned you and has called you to be this piece of his heavenly plan, be it from a Jewish background, be it from a Gentile background, be it when you're young, be it when it's old, whatever it is, as long as God has called you, then just walk in obedience to Jesus. That's all that matters. God has saved you. Just walk and follow. Deny yourself. Pick up your cross. Follow Jesus. Pretty simple. A lot of contentment in following Jesus. Verse 20. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. I don't know if you've noticed, our society uh, tends to reward high achievements and tends to frown upon those who just live a steadfast, a faithful, and a quiet life. Those mantras, be all that you can be, dream big, all of that stuff, right? Those mantras of self-improvement are all around us all the times. They're, you know, I fall into a few of them, especially when it comes to the latest and greatest technology. I'm sorry, I have to confess that sin right here in front of you now. Um, but it happens. And you know what? I cannot tell you how many ministry books I read as a pastor of a small church. And it seemed like almost every time I'd pick up one of those ministry books, not all, but many of them, I would start reading them, and I would say, this book has one goal in mind, to make me discontent over being a small church pastor. This book is telling me how I should like them, aim for the stars and grow, 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 grow. Tell you, discontentment can be bred in many forms and in many hearts. Remaining in the condition God has called us often entails us shutting our ears to the mantras of discontentment in the world around us and to just lay our trust upon God. So Paul continues in verse 21, another class of people. Were you a bondservant? when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can, gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. You know what? Right there, that verse alone is probably enough to make many an unbeliever to run off saying, I'm aghast, I'm aghast. How can you be a Christian? The Bible condones slavery. That's not what's happening there. No. 
You know, first off, we have to get this picture out of our minds of the American slavery that took place in the U.S. hundreds of years ago. We've got to get that picture out of our mind, and we have to get the, the modern picture of sex trafficking out of our minds for a moment. And we have to remember as we do try to lay those things aside that it's typically your Christians that have fought tires, tirelessly to abolish such evils as those. So we put those types out of our mind, and then we say, okay, what is Paul talking about when you're a bondservant when you're called? When you're, if you were a slave when you were called, were you a slave when you were called? I mean, quite simple. And that's one of two ways we ought to look at that. In the Roman Empire, it is true that when Rome went in and they conquered a city, often they put some of those conquered into servitude, into slavery. That is true. Now, just because of how my brain works, I think of that from an eternal perspective. And I'm thinking if I am sitting there in my little community and Roman soldiers come in, and instead of killing me, they enslave me. I'm looking at this from an eternal perspective, trying to find some good in everything. All right? It's probably much better that I would be assigned the position of a slave before I am saved. I'd be assigned a position of a slave. So therefore, I have an opportunity to hear the gospel, be saved, and go to heaven. That's just kind of the way I think. But I'm going to lay all that aside and talk about the second prevalent form of slavery that was in, in the world in Rome at that time, and that was that of an indentured servant, of someone who has sold him or herself into service of another, into slavery, for a period of time to pay off a debt that was owed. That was something that happened at the founding of this country. People would sell themselves into service to get across the ocean, to get into America. And they would work as a servant for so many years until that debt was paid. Now, roughly, and it, I have looked at so many different statistics through the years, but anywhere from 30 to 60 percent, depending on where you were in the Roman Empire, was, were slaves. So this is a big thing Paul's writing about. Paul's not telling us, though, from this verse, he's not telling us, go out and conquer. Get yourself a servant. No. He's not also saying, he's not also saying that slavery is a good thing. I don't hear that anywhere in there. But what he is doing is he is acknowledging the fact that God being rich in mercy, has mercifully caused a number of slaves to be born again onto new life. So in other words, Paul is acknowledging this truth out of that huge percentage of slaves that were probably even you know, in the church at that point because they, had, they were still slaves, but they were part of God's church. A huge number of slaves God mercifully saved. And that's what Paul is acknowledging here. And what he's basically saying, okay, so God has saved you in the state of being a slave. You know what? Until you see your freedom, you can serve and glorify God by following Christ and doing the work he has handed you right there where you are in that current condition. Verse 22. 
For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So earlier on, Paul told those who found themselves a bondservant, a slave, however we want to look at it, he told them earlier on, you know, if you can go free, go free. Well, one way for that to happen, let's, let's consider this, let's imagine this. A man sells himself into slavery, sells himself into servitude. He comes in indentured service. He agrees to work as a slave until his, until his debt of $100 million is paid off. And the agreement is, for every hour he works as a slave, $1 of that debt will be paid off. That man is forever a slave. He cannot work hard enough. He cannot work long enough to ever pay that $100 million. So one way that that man may become free is for someone else to walk in and to say, you know what? I'm going to go to that master that owns that man and I am going to pay the $100 million so that that person can go free. And in essence, that's what Paul's telling us, that we were bought. We were ransomed. We were redeemed. Somebody went to the master that had control over us, the master sin, the master self, the master Satan. Somebody went and says, I will pay the debt. I will pay what that person owes. 1 Peter 1.18 even tells us the currency of the payment. Some transaction has been made here. And, and 1 Peter 18 tells us, he says, Peter writes, you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, fathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Paul's telling those who are slaves, you know what, there's a bigger picture here. You are actually bought with something that is more precious than even silver and gold, the very blood of Christ. You know, that debt that stood against you and me, the sum of the fines that we had accrued each and every time we sinned, that debt too large for us to pay back, no matter how hard we ever worked, that debt was paid by Christ. One of the songs I like, we do it here at times, is, you know, Jesus paid it all. He didn't just pay partial, paid it all. Jesus paid it all in his own precious blood so that we could walk free, no longer required to serve sin, no longer required to serve Satan, no longer required to serve ourselves, being free to serve Christ. You know, and each person who hears this message, be it in the room, be it at home, be it 10 years from now on the internet, each person right now is serving one of those four or one of those three plus one other master. Each person is serving either themselves, their own will. They're serving the will of other men or women. They're serving Satan or they're 
serving Christ. Verse 24. Brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. You know, that's another, one thing I'll point out here. That's another use of the word called. You know, we have eight verses this morning we're looking at, and eight times in those eight verses the word called or call comes up. Along with that word assignment thrown in there for good measure. Brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. Can you remember a time, maybe, when you felt discontentment in your own heart? Maybe last week. Maybe a month ago. Maybe tonight as we watch Tom win a Super Bowl. For another team, we may feel a little discontentment in our hearts over the quarterback situation currently in New England. But do you, can you remember a time when you really felt or went through a period of discontentment in your own heart? Maybe last month, maybe this morning. A time when you found yourself actually believing or wanting to believe and repeating over and over and over again some of those silly mantras that we heard in the beginning. In, in a hope that maybe one day soon you would wake up in the morning and you would feel like everything made sense and you have arrived. Have you ever maybe felt depression over what you were not achieving? I mean, have you ever wanted to just stop trying because it seemed like you couldn't do anything right? Has the world, or even other Christians, made you feel small because they were doing such big things for God? Have you grown discontent when you started measuring yourself up to others? And you found yourself lacking. You know, there's a lot of contentment to just be found and just doing what God's called us to do or he's put us to do it and not measuring ourselves up with other people. I told Pastor Stephen before the sermon, I said, you know what? I'm not you. I got a whole different style. He says, that's good. When I started preaching many years ago, I wanted to have the style of an Alistair Begg or a John MacArthur. Instead, I got me. I have to trust, though, that I'm doing what God's assigned me to do at the place I've been assigned to do it by his power and his grace and his mercy. That way I can find some contentment in all of this. You know what? If you've ever felt discontentment and found yourself lacking, then I tell you what, verse 24 is really, when we look at it, it's good news for us. In whatever condition you were called, remain with God. You know, a few times in my life, and that's why this is so personal to me, but a few times in my life, God has in an instant turned my life upside down. Times when 
I felt all of a sudden as if I had been literally picked up, flipped over, sat back down, and it was the first time that I'd ever been walking on my feet, standing upright. Oh, how beautiful it is when God turns our lives upside down and we find ourselves walking right side up. I get, I truly get the title of this sermon series, Beautifully Upside Down. I get it. In contrast to all that this world extols and exalts, in terms of all that this world wants us to do and be who we can be and to exceed. And in contrast to all of that, in contrast to all of those silly, I can be anything I want to be sermons, and any of those silly, I can be anything I want to be self-help books. In contrast to all of that, we have God's beautiful kingdom, which is upside down to the rest of it. And it's actually the only way to walk up right side up is in his kingdom, looking at it through his eyes. I mean, do you see it this morning? Do you see that our contentment and service to God is found in our just remaining in relationship with Jesus no matter where we find ourselves at the moment, we trust him that we are supposed to be there. So be it, maybe that you're, a, you're teaching college students on a campus. Or maybe you're at home with toddlers teaching them how to pray. You know what? Just stick to Jesus. Just do what he's given you to do and do it well. Do it to his glory. Do it by his grace, his power, his help. And you've got, maybe you have a gift to work on cars. Or maybe your gift is bacon brownies. Maybe God's got you in a place that you can work on cars and maybe he's got this person in a place that, that they can bake brownies. Well, who knows? If they both do it just to the glory of God, to fulfill their purpose that God has given them in life, who knows? Maybe one of them has just repaired the car that's going to take a church planner, allow them to drive overside a town to where a family has just heard the gospel as they were at a bake sale buying brownies. And maybe that church planner now can go over there and disciple them and they, maybe a church will start up. Hey, be your piece of the puzzle at home on Zoom calls, which I absolutely despise, in the office, at the grocery store, getting takeout, riding your mountain bike, or skiing on a slope. I tell you, I've done both lately, rode in snow and been on those things in snow in the last couple of years, I'll take the bike. Um, sorry, Christine, if you're here today. <laughs> and if right now 
somebody, maybe not in here, maybe at home, if for nearly two decades as a bivocational pastor of a small church, if you're feeling discontent over God keeping you in the business world instead of growing your church big enough that you can become a full-time servant of God in ministry. If that's you, please understand this. Whatever condition God has you in, you can serve Jesus right there full-time. Because, you know, a businessman can reach people with the gospel that a church pastor cannot. And an automobile mechanic can reach people with the gospel that a baker may not. A stay-at-home mom can make little disciples and teach them to follow the commands of Jesus in a way that no college professor ever can. I mean, I could go on. I could, I could just go on and give examples of examples. Instead, let me just end this morning by saying, I'm going to say it the way my mom always told me, and I hated this, absolutely hated the saying when she started saying when I was 14 years old. We had pictures all over. We had all these different things with this little mantra, this little saying that I absolutely hated, but now I appreciate. Instead of giving more examples, let me just say what mom told me. Bloom where you are planted. Bloom where you are planted. Now, I know that you've heard that saying before, but in light of today's text, I think bloom where you are planted makes a lot more sense than any other mantra out there. Let us do for Christ what he would have us do where God has put us to do it. Okay, so where do we go from here? How should we respond to something like this, to this guy up here preaching, to God's word? Well, I find it interesting, if you're not a Christian, I'll start there. If you're not a Christian, maybe in this sanctuary, at home, online, in the future, if you're not a Christian, well, you know what? God had you listen to this message this morning. He put you right where he wanted you and had you listen to what he wanted you to listen to. Um, if that's you, you can go and confess your sin to God. I mean, you can acknowledge that all those good works that you've done cannot pay that $100 million debt that stands against you, that, that infinite debt that stands against you that all the good works you've done are not good enough. You can acknowledge that, that, that they are not good enough to allow you to enter into the presence of the perfect God in eternal life. I mean, you can ask God to forgive your sins. You can believe that out of God's great love for you that he became man in the person of Jesus Christ and that you can believe when Jesus went to the cross that that debt that you owed was actually placed upon Jesus and that the righteous living that Jesus did in this life was actually accredited to your account. You can believe that today, that the debt has been canceled out that stood against you as Christ reached up and nailed it to the cross as it was nailed there. 
You can believe that you have been saved by grace. And then you can go forth in that belief, walking in freedom and serving God and thanking him for all the work he has done to save you. So if you're, you know, if you're an unbeliever and you hear this voice inside of you or this feeling in your heart or whatever you want to call it, and it's saying, you know what? He's talking to you. Confess your sin. Ask for forgiveness. Then do it. Don't harden your hearts today if you hear his voice. Now, for the rest of us, if we are followers of Jesus, then you know what we can do? We can go forth trusting even more in our Lord and our Savior, that he has exactly right where he wants us, when he wants us, doing those things that he wants us to do. And we can do all of it even more so to his glory. We can stop coveting and envying the calling that God has placed upon the lives of others or the work that he has given them to do. And we can just press into God And, you know, I hear that saying every week, press in, press in, press in. What does that mean? You know, I think contextually in Scripture, in my mind, what I'm hearing is to draw close to God that he might draw close to me. We can do that. We can draw close to him, knowing that he will draw close to us. And in that closeness, we can then go forward more fully knowing, accepting, trusting and walking in that piece of the puzzle that he has assigned to us, to the glory of his name, to the furtherance of his kingdom. We can follow our King Jesus so that in the end, God's beautiful plan, when every last piece of the puzzle is put in place, will bring him glory forever. Let's pray. Father, we're really, we're really thankful. We're grateful, Lord, for your mercy, your love, your kindness, for the perfection of your plan, for the goodness of your will. We're thankful, Father, that you have put us right where we are this morning. We're thankful for all that you've given us, for your your Holy Spirit that dwells within us, that we might walk in our calling, walk in your will. We're thankful for that, Lord. Lord, as as we prepare to sing one final song of worship this morning, Lord, we, we lift up those who maybe have listened into this sermon today who do not know you. We pray that your grace would touch them right where they are, that they might start serving you and living the life that you have for them right now. We pray that you would put your spirit upon them and give them a new heart and new life. And Lord, we ask as we stand here that we not take anything for granted that you've given us. We use it. We'd be good stewards of it. And Lord, we do lift up this world around us that thinks that they are right side up. All of those that think that through mantras, through 
self-help and everything that they can kind of find a place of contentment and fulfillment in life. And we know it's all, it's all untrue, Lord. So we do pray for pouring out of your spirit upon this land, your spirit of repentance, your spirit of, of grace and mercy. We pray for our nation. We pray for our families that do not know you. We pray for those who are battling this COVID. We pray you bring the COVID to an end, Lord. And all to the glory of your name. Just let us walk as you have called us. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and respond.